you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. What a wonderful time of worship we have had thus far. May continue as we have opportunity to study God's Word. And I would invite you, if you would, grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42 as we uh, continue in our road trip with glimpses of glory as we are taking a bit of a road trip through the book of Isaiah. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. Uh, you can turn to page 637, and if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that one home uh, with you and uh, consider it our gift to you. And so as we have seen and what we have really looked at are glimpses of glory, and we have seen the glorious nature of who our God is on a wonderful display there in Isaiah chapter 40. And I've seen all these wonderful ways in which that shapes the way we think of who He is and how He is and how He's even at work in our own lives. And again, we're going to see similar matters as we come into Isaiah chapter 42. But as you think about any road trip or anything that you've been on, uh, maybe you've had those circumstances before where when you first started to go on the trip, you weren't really all that interested right? You were just sort of along for the ride, and you were like, okay, yeah, we'll see some things. And maybe that was you when you were in your adolescence, and you were too cool for everything, or whatever the case may be. Maybe that's you now. I don't really know. But you were just along for the ride, not really paying attention. It didn't really matter to you whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, there was some sort of transition in the trip to where the things that you were beholding became more less about simply information transfer, and all of a sudden, it became extremely personal. All of a sudden, it's like you've met someone inside, and with their expertise, with their understanding, with the way in which they, the nature of things is revealed, you just cannot get over it. It'd be sort of like somebody going to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and if you're not a fan of baseball, you'd be like, okay, that'd be pretty cool, yeah, I'd like to see some of that stuff. And then all of a sudden, you sort of round the corner in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and Greg Maddox is there, and you say, hey, come with me, I want to show you some things. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, this just got a whole lot better, right? Even if you don't even care, all of a sudden, it's like, this is Greg Maddox. Maybe Roger Clemens is in there, and you're having a personal conversation, and it's one-on-one, and you're like, this is amazing. And what you at first seem to be disinterested in, all of a sudden, you can't stop talking about it. See, this is what God is calling us to as we behold Him. As we catch these glimpses of glory that we're not simply being able to articulate the grandeur in this, simply in the sense of Him being massive, but the ways in which this is so personally applicable that who He is and how He is and what He's done matters for you and me individually. So with interest in your heart, maybe your attention sparked a little more, grab your copy of God's Word and look with me at Isaiah chapter 42 and read with me if you will, Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 9. And this is what we read. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. 
I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, open our eyes this morning. By your Spirit and for your glory, Father, may we open our eyes and behold this wonderful glimpse of Jesus here in Isaiah chapter 42. Father, help us to see that we would know, that we would respond in a way that brings you glory and honor in all things in every way. At this moment, Lord, lift our eyes to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we think about where we've been, and you think about the context of Isaiah 40, and we talked a little bit already about the grandeur of the glory of God and just the incomparable nature of it and the personal reality of how that connects. And then if you're reading in between the chapter, if you just read Isaiah chapter 41, you would find the same sort of declarations of comfort being given to the people of Israel, that God is sovereign and He's in control, even though sometimes the circumstances don't look that way. And then He goes forward again and just destroys any notion of having any hope whatsoever in idols. And then it turns again, the, the text turns again, and all of a sudden it's as though God is speaking to his people and holding someone forth because he says, behold my servant. Now, if you read Isaiah chapter 41, you would see in Isaiah chapter 41 that Israel is actually referred to as God's servant there. But you can see a noticeable distinction between the servant that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 41 and the one that's mentioned here in 42 and the one that's mentioned in 53, and the one that's mentioned in 61, because the distinction is clear. The people of Israel were a servant in the sense that they belonged to the Lord and they were serving Him, but they were reliant and dependent upon God to accomplish the mission. In this circumstance, what we find is this servant is actually the accomplisher of the mission. There's a personal, singular nature about who this is, even in the, the way in which the text unfolds. And so it's as though God is directing our attention that we should enjoy knowing the servant of the Lord who is Jesus Christ. And it's like he's holding him forth in front of us saying, behold, my servant, turn your attention and turn your focus to him. And then as we think about this and we say, okay, well, I want to do that, and I want to do that from Isaiah chapter 42. What are these sort of telltale markers along the way? Or if we're going to follow the same sort of metaphor as a road trip, what are the signs along the way that are going to point me in the right direction to make sure that I'm looking at the right one? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? He says, behold my servant whom I uphold. And we're reminded here of Jesus in his full humanity and the way in which he was constantly reliant upon the Father. And that if you just go through and read the Gospels, you see even though he is fully God, he is clearly fully man, fully dependent upon the Father in every way. He is God's set-apart one, his chosen one, set apart in a way that only he could fulfill this mission. Only he could accomplish what needed to be accomplished. Only he could serve in this way. Isn't it interesting? That's exactly what Jesus said. I came not to be served, but to serve into what? To give his life as a ransom for many. 
We see this very thing on display here. Not only does he say, whom I uphold, and he says, my chosen, he says, in whom my soul delights. And of course, God is using, it's a fun word to even say out loud, God is using anthropomorphic language, right? He's using words that describe his response in a human way. And so we're to understand it that way, that we're under understand the way in which his soul delights figuratively in a way that we can come to grips with. Who else could this be? God himself delights in him. We understand even from the outset that in every moment of our lives, God does not delight in us. God wholeheartedly delights in the glory of his son, doesn't he? He wholeheartedly delights in the mission of his son, and he wholeheartedly points our attention and our affection to be driven towards the son. And it's just like any road trip, and especially if you've ever been on a road trip with, a, with your parents or if you've ever been a parent on a road trip, really what you want to do is you want to share delight with your children, don't you? Say, this was fun for me, so I'm going to share it with you. And of course, sometimes our kids are like, really? And at first they're like, I don't know if I want to do that, right? That sounds like a terrible idea. I can't believe you ever thought this was fun. And then you're like, just wait, just hold on. We'll get there, and I promise you, you'll enjoy it. And they're skeptical the whole way, and you get one step into it. They're like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. Like, I told you. I'm not just nerdy dad after all, am I? Not just nerdy mom in the end anyway. See, what it is, is God is sharing this enjoyment. He's calling us into share the enjoyment of Jesus, of knowing Jesus. And you remember the testimony even of God the Father at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He says, behold, enjoy knowing the servant of the Lord. Enjoy knowing Jesus. How else do we see his identity? How else are we to enjoy him? Look at what he says. He says, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. God's spirit at work in Jesus in an uncommon way. Do we see that in the Gospels? Yes. And it's interesting that it's... The Spirit upon him. You remember the baptism as well, right? And the Spirit descending like a dove. And this visible illustration that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all there and all at work. And you think of the work of the Holy Spirit in the sense of conviction of sin and the clarity of message and displaying of divine power, calling people to repent and believe. And it's interesting even reading this passage because if you're reading along in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, and you came along to Matthew chapter 12, and you came along to Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, Matthew 12 quotes this text specifically in reference to Jesus. So this is clearly him laying him out, notice, pushing him forward, saying, behold him in all of his glory. And what is he going to do? He's going to bring forth justice to the nations. Now, on any road trip, we all bring stuff, don't we? We've all got luggage that we want to bring. Some of us bring more luggage than others. And in a lot of ways, our luggage and what we bring on a trip says something about what we find is important. It says something about us as a person, right? What does Jesus bring forward? He brings forward justice 
Whereas it can also be translated judgment to the nations. Really in description of his rule and his reign and his lordship. That everyone on planet earth owes their allegiance to Jesus. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the, the right thing to do is to bow in faith now and acknowledge his, his, his lordship and submit to it and believe in him and what he's done for you. But one day every knee will bow nevertheless. And he's using words that are specific here. He says judgment or justice to the nations. He's using the word that could be translated Gentiles. It's a, a word that's really commonly used as a reference to unbelievers. A reminder of the global mission of Christ and the global allegiance he is due. That all are accountable to him. Yet the mission of Christ reaches to the farthest ends of the earth. We celebrate that. We rejoice in that. The fact of the matter is every single one of us in here are a testimony to that, aren't we? We live that. Are we enjoying knowing him who brought this forward? Of all the things he could have brought, he brought this. Notice what he didn't do. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He wasn't shouting and startling people. He wasn't acting obnoxious in his ministry. If you've ever been on a road trip anywhere, you found yourself in some uncomfortable situations where there's some people doing some obnoxious things over here, and all you, all you really do is just watch them out of the corner of your eye and be like, don't be like that guy. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was not just being obnoxious for obnoxious sake. Jesus is far more convincing than that. It says he would not lift up his voice in the sense of domineering over other people. And really in not domineering, he's actually demonstrating that he is in complete control because it's the people who are domineering who are actually displaying that they're afraid they don't have control. Maybe you've lived under that sort of circumstance before. And eventually what happens? You quit listening. You tune them out. Now, Jesus is far more winsome than that, isn't he? He says he would not lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Jesus is not some publicity stunt. He's not merely after some attention, some likes on social media, some sort of fleeting say, oh, yeah, good job, Jesus, and that was it. He's after our hearts. He's transforming our lives. He's in it for the long haul and hard work. And he's done it in and of himself. Because here we are as people, hurt, often lonely, isolated, broken, needy sinners. And he has come. And as we look at him, and behold him and start to get a sense of just how winsome, winsomely wonderful he actually is. We have this wonderful reminder of his gentle strength. He says a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
Now, I know I don't give book recommendations a whole lot from the pulpit, but I'm going to give one. There's a book written many, many years ago by a man named Richard Sibbs called A Bruised Reed. And it really unpacks that verse alone in an expression of the gentle might of Jesus. What a wonderful testimony we have here of Jesus. Enjoy his gentle strength because in in actual fact, it takes strength to be gentle. It takes strength for a surgeon to be so gentle Gentle in terms of dealing with the issue and yet bringing healing at the same time. It takes gentle strength for a gardener to be able to root out what needs to be gone and yet nurture to life what is so fragile. This is how Christ is. This is who we are to enjoy. This is the one we are meant to be beholding, to be amazed by. Look at the picture that this paints. A bruised reed he will not break. We're familiar with reeds, right? You see them and they're sort of right there on the swamp. They get folded over. And once a reed is folded over, what? That's it. You can pick it up as many times as you want. It just flops right back down. You can do this. Maybe you can put a stick right next to it and it just folds right back over. It's gone, it's done, it's over. What looked like it had a veneer of strength actually was hollow on the inside, didn't have anything in there. The only thing left to do is to break it off. See, this is a descriptor of all of us having only the veneer of strength with just a little push we fold over in brokenness. Life folds us over and reminds us of how entrenched our sin actually is. We're folded over and broken, irreparably so. And anyone else would have looked at us, reeds folded over by the wind, and said, there's nothing else to do with them. We should just throw them all away. And yet Jesus did not say that, did he? Jesus did not do that. A bruised reed, Jesus will not break. See, we need not waste our time trying to convince ourselves that we're not bruised reeds. In admitting reality and admitting our own brokenness and admitting the the depth of our own sin, the hollowness of our own hearts without Him, in admitting all of that, we get to enjoy His strength. That as we turn away from our lust and turn away from our pride and turn away from our self-righteousness and turn to Him, we can enjoy His grace and His strength through repentance and faith in He who not only holds us up, but He who died to save us that He would hold us up. A bruised reed He will not break. A faintly burning wick He will not quench. The picture is not a candle picture is actually what you might think of as like Aladdin's lamp. It's got a wick out of the lip of it. Those were the lamps that were carried around. And in fact, this is often translated flax, right? And the reason is because this is the same word for flax in the Hebrew text. 
but they would take the most of the nice flax they would use, but when the fibers got really rough, instead of using them for linen, they would use them for wicks, and they would twist them together and tuck them down in there, use it as a wick, put oil in the middle of the lamp, and then light it on fire. But eventually all that fuel is gone. See, the picture here is not only that, some, that something is about to burn out, but that there's nothing in there to draw from. There's nothing on the inside. And again, what a depiction of all of us without Christ, empty and out of fuel, and just one more breath, just one more thing, just one more move of anything, and there we go, and we're out. But Jesus sustains what ought to extinguish and fills the emptiness with His goodness and grace. Do we see how amazing He is? Do we see what reason we have to enjoy Jesus forever? That He restores what is on the on the faint edge of extinguishing forever, he restores and extends and lifts us up. What an amazing picture here. A bruised reed will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He will faithfully bring forth justice. No one gets a pass. Repent or likewise perish. Justice will take place. That's why we can, we can quote things like Romans 3. And we can acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead, that he is our propitiation. So we can say God is just and the fact that sin is punished, but God is justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Those two things are true together. He will bring this forth. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And in so doing, as we think about that, he will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. He's not depleted of strength to finish the task. He's not like us when we get two-thirds of the way through mowing our grass. We get there and it's like, do I quit? Do I go get some water? Do I just burn the lawnmower? I don't know what I'm going to do. He never runs out. He never depletes of strength. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. You think of all of the reasons that we and really the excuses that we use for quitting, for giving up, for being discouraged, for saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to. Not him. We get weary of one another quite easily. He finds us reeds folded over by the wind, faintly burning wicks. And to borrow a phrase from Richard Sibbs, he doesn't look at us and say, it's too far gone. And Christ cherishes even the least beginnings. Saying, oh, we're only getting started. These pictures of his goodness and grace and his strength to sustain us in ways that we never could have sustained ourselves. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, his rule, in his reign, in his people. And it's evident and meant to be evident in display in the lives of those who know him by faith. Is it in your life? We should ask. 
Is it on display that you are trusting in Him, that you are enjoying knowing Him, that you are walking with Him? Because not only are we meant to see that in our own lives, we are meant to see that in distinction with the world around us and see that as an opportunity to go tell them because the coastlands wait for His law. There are so many unreached people. I mean, we can talk in terms of billions of people. We can talk in terms of the more than 7,300 unreached people groups where you've got less than 2% evangelical Christians in 7,000 different people groups in the world. We can use all these global figures, but I'm telling you, some of these coastlands are a whole lot closer than we think they are. Gwinnett County Schools. On their website... They openly say that there are, there are 191 different nations represented in Gwinnett County Schools. There are 195 nations on earth. The coastlands have come to us. There are 98 different languages spoken in Gwinnett County Schools. The coastlands have come to us. They wait for His law. They're waiting for the rule and reign of Christ to be displayed in our lives and that we would set forth to go with the gospel and tell them that as creation groans that there would be beautiful feet going out with the message, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, going ashore in foreign lands and going ashore up the driveways of our neighbors and friends. They wait. You see, are we enjoying Jesus now? That we would turn around and, and share the enjoyment with others. Because the more we enjoy knowing ourselves, the more we will enjoy telling of Him and telling of His glorious mission. What does this glorious mission look like? What, is, what are we supposed to see? Look at what He says as the text continues. Because now all of a sudden, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Written through the prophet Isaiah, we are invited into this wonderful conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Because in verse 5, it says, Thus says, the Lord, says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. It's like, be reminded of who we're listening to here. Who is speaking? Maybe you've been to museums before on summer road trips and that sort of thing, and you've, you've gone to places, and maybe you, you've heard somebody who's a tour guide, and maybe you've heard the, the person who thinks they're the tour guide and they're actually not. And you know the distinction, don't you? You're listening to one person, like, man, this person really knows what they're talking about. And then you're listening to the other person, be like, I'm pretty sure they made all of that up. Who is speaking matters. Well, who is telling us all of this? Who is revealing all of this? We ought to be reminded, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. Yahweh, the, the I am, the Lord God himself. Why should we listen to him? He created the heavens and stretched them out. He created everything. He ordered creation. He spoke all existence into being. 
all those things, students that you're learning and studying in school, all those things, adults that you wish you would have learned in school, all the reasons that we can know anything or understand anything, the only reason math functions or science works or that we can have any knowledge of history whatsoever or language functions in any way is because God has ordered the universe in an understandable way. And he has made us so that we can comprehend it. But we are reminded here, it's the he who created the heavens and stretched them out that's telling us all of this. The extent of space itself is up to him. Oftentimes you may find yourself as you read all of these things about, you know, the telescopes seeing these things billions of light years away and you're like why is space so big and here we are and we're so small the heavens declare the glory of God not the glory of man we're meant to look at that and say that's the God who loves me that's the God who sustains me that's the God who will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax who created the heavens and spread out the earth and what comes from it. The word that's being used there in the Hebrew is 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 a, a word that's used in description of hammering out metal. The beautiful sort of work that's laid out there. The attention to detail. That God in His providence is ordering all the details together with His purposeful sovereignty as His providence is rightly defined. To the glory of God, he gives breath to everything. And spirit to those who walk in it. And that we who are image bearers, we who are human beings made in the image of God, we have a way of comprehending that your begonias and your chihuahuas do not. We are meant to know Him, to enjoy Him, to trust Him, and to enjoy knowing the mission of the Lord. And it's as though He's silencing every other voice and saying, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Listen to this internal conversation. I am the Lord, as He speaks to the servant. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. That it's before the mission is even unveiled, it's as though we're being reminded of the majesty of the Lord because theology must precede practice. Right doctrine will lead to right doing. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Yahweh speaking to His Son, the servant, in righteousness I have called you. That everything about Jesus' life Ministry, everything displays His perfect righteousness. You think of the wonder of the hypostatic union, right? The union of two natures of Christ, that He is fully God and fully man. That He lived in perfect righteousness. He was tempted in every way as we are, and yet was without sin. Why? So that He could go to the cross and die in our place, that enduring the full outpouring of the wrath of God, we'd have forgiveness and everlasting life in Him. Or we could say it this way. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become His righteousness. His righteousness is our only hope. He says, I take you by the hand and keep you. 
Here he is fully God and fully man, dependent, led, guided in every moment and in every way. He is kept and set apart and led and guided right to the perfect fulfillment of the perfect mission at the perfect time in the perfect way. I take you by the hand and keep you. I give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now, we don't use these words too often, but we ought to. What is a covenant? Well, bear with me as I read a definition for you. It says, an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. It's from Wayne Grudem. A covenant, a binding promise that has significant consequences for ignoring. Now, we use the word covenant for all manner of things. Maybe you're in a homeowner's association, you've got covenants there. You put some sort of weird whatever in your front yard, there's going to be consequences. More significant than that, marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant commitment between two people, but it's a covenant commitment between two people and God himself. And that there are severe implications for ignoring that covenant. There's a church covenant where we partner together in the same focus, in the same unity of doctrine and unity of faith. There are significant consequences for ignoring such things. Jesus is given as a covenant for the people, and the word that's used for for people is a reference to believing people who have received him as the basis of relationship with God the Father, turning away from sin and trusting in Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way by which we come to know the Father. He is our life and our hope. He is the one through whom we have forgiveness and adoption and reconciliation. And so we enjoy his mission for us. He has been given to us as a promise. And he is a light for the nations. The word that he uses there for nations is again that reference to unbelieving people. Christ is a light in the darkness. Which when light penetrates the darkness, it's both an interruption and an invitation. But that interruption is often not well received. I think about that every time I'm driving down the road at night and all of a sudden it feels like a car is more like a 747 driving right towards me. You know, are the wings about to hit me? This is insane. But see, that's how light penetrates the darkness. We often get frustrated by it. Somebody flips on the lights at 2 o'clock in the morning, and you're like, what are you doing? But see, that's how many people first hear the gospel. It's offensive. We need not think everybody's going to be like, oh, that is good news. You're right. A lot of times people are going to be like, don't interrupt my sin. People love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They don't want that interrupted. Don't mess with me with that. It's a light for the nations, but that light shows reality and calls. It's an invitation as well. A light for the nations. And what is that light to the nations going to do? Look at verse 7. Open the eyes that are blind. Bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. Jesus gives sight to the blind. We can go read John chapter 9 and see how Jesus heals the man born blind. And we can rejoice with the testimony, I once was blind, but now I see. But we can look back across the Gospels and see that all these repeated reminders of his healing power are a testimony to his further spiritual power. 
I mean, you can think about it with the paralytic. Whenever in Mark chapter 2, and they lower him down to the ground, he looks at everybody and says, in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. It's not that he lacks the power to do either, but it displays a greater miracle when he gives sight to the blind. Spiritually, when we open our eyes and behold him and see the glory of who he is, we enjoy knowing him, called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, that we would go and do the same thing and tell others Jesus saves. He brings out the prisoners from the dungeon, those who are sitting in darkness. Because without Christ, you're captive in heart, captive in soul, choosing what you want, but not choosing what you ought. Captive to sin, in the dark. And he rescues us. He who lights up the darkness. You can see the picture because if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've lived the picture. You were there in solitary confinement on account of your own sin. You knew it. You deserved it. Huddled up in a corner and it looked like nobody cared and nobody was coming. And then light pierced the darkness. He came for you. He came to get you and he kicked the door open and said, you're mine. You're coming with me. You belong to me, my son, my daughter. What a Savior we have. Do we enjoy his mission, the light of his holiness, the light of his truth, to show us our need, our need for him, and lead us to see his grace and his love. He's not here to exalt us. He's here to rescue us and be exalted himself. Are we enjoying him in this way? His mission for you. So that we could look back on our lives and not recount all the things that I did and I made and I accomplished and I decided and all these things. Look at what Jesus has done for me. Testify to it in that way. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them. I tell you of them. Yahweh, the Lord, that is his name. Why would he say that? Because we all still acknowledge that putting your name on anything is serious. You can be in the grocery store line and they say, hey, do you want to sign up for our rewards program? And you'll say, do I have to put my name on it? Yes, I don't want it. Put your name on it, you feel committed to it. We recognize a signature is significant, don't we? The signature in our salvation reads Yahweh. He did it. His name is on it. He says, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Those idols in the corner didn't do that for you, nor could they. They can't do anything. His glory he gives to no other. So what an amazing reality that we are appointed to give glory and honor to God the Son himself. And we see the significance of Jesus and his glory, the purpose of his mission. No praise to idols. Glory to the name of Jesus. 
He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see, we are in a very beneficial position here reading Isaiah chapter 42. Because we can read Isaiah chapter 42 and we can look backwards and we can see, look at the faithfulness of God. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 and you can just start plodding along and look at God's faithfulness in Genesis. Look at all the reasons God had for just being absolutely frustrated and destroying the whole thing. Yet he saved a remnant, didn't he? Look at his grace on display. You can read the book of Exodus. You can read Joshua. You can go on and read even in Chronicles. And you can read really the parallel historical accounts with what's going on in the days of Isaiah himself. And you think, this is astounding that God would put up with any of this. That he would retain and reserve his people this long. And yet he has. And so his faithfulness in the past testifies to his faithfulness now. Testifies to his faithfulness in the future. Because from where we sit, we also read we're on the other side of the resurrection. The, all this display of the glory of Jesus, both in terms of who he is and the mission that he has accomplished, we see with pristine clarity on this side of the new covenant. New things I now declare. He says, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And so all along the way, what we see is we're not just beholding the grandeur of the glory of God in this isolated, disinterested sense. We're being invited to know He who spoke all this into existence. To know He who is described in Colossians 1.16, Jesus, by Him and for Him all things were created. Only He could do this. Only He did do this. Do we enjoy Him now? Or do you find yourself looking for a better option? See, for a lot of us, that's the way the disinterested tourist works. You're just waiting for the next best thing. Waiting for something better down the road. Waiting for something better to come along. Waiting for someone else to just sort of tell you what you want to hear and lead you along. That's not coming. What you need is Jesus. Who you need is Jesus. It's time to enjoy Him. And enjoying Him starts with admitting reality. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. And so he calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Repent and believe. And so you turn from your sin and you look to Jesus and say, I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. And there's forgiveness and everlasting life in his name. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your background may be, no matter what part of the coastlands of any part of this planet you may have come from, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, look at what you get to enjoy. That the enjoyment now just leads to enjoyment forever. Do you know Him today? Are you ready to put away trivial things and start enjoying life in Christ? Respond to him in a way that acknowledges the grandeur of his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. We thank you for your word and for teaching us. Father, we thank you for reminding us of the depth of enjoyment that's found in Christ. And Lord, we pray 
that in this moment now, that broken, empty sinners would cry out for mercy and find hope in Jesus today. Father, we pray for the people in here who have never known you. We pray that today would be the day of their salvation. We pray for all of us in here that we would have a greater sense of enjoyment of Jesus in all things and in every way as we respond to you now. May it be a reflection of the fact that we know you, we trust you, we believe, and in Jesus there's life. Help us, Lord, to magnify you in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.